You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Well, what a what an amazing passage of scripture. There's there's a ton here. We're not going to be able to, to, to press into every single part of it. Um, but I want you to raise your hand if at any point in your life you've stubbed your toe. Raise your hand. Like probably one of the worst things that, that could happen, right? Um, what about like you uh, go to the store, you pull in, you find a good parking spot, and then uh, you go into the store, you come out, and somebody next to you put a huge ding in your car door. Raise your hand if that's happened to you. Okay, yeah, that's frustrating. Um, what about uh, going on a trip and you uh, pack and you try to get everything packed well and then something like liquidy explodes in your luggage? Has that ever happened to anybody? Yes? Um, and, and in all these situations, what is the thing that comes to our mind often is, is why do bad things happen to good people? Often that is somewhat of our response is, is I'm, I'm, I'm such a good person. I do good things for God. And, and why, why did I just stub my toe? Or why did they ding my car door? Or, or I, what did I do to deserve this? See, there's a problem with that mentality. The problem with that mentality is um, there's no such thing as a good person. See, in a 2022 survey, 71% of people, that's a, a large chunk of this room, that would be here over these two sections, 71% of people believe that we are born innocent in the eyes of God, that we're good people, that we have a good nature. But this belief causes a problem because that's not what the Bible says. Yes, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates. God creates uh, mountains and birds and trees and fish and all this amazing things. And what does he call it? He calls it good. And he makes man and he says, it's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to create woman. I'm going to bring woman to man. And then what does he say? It is very good. But then, enter Genesis 3. We start to, to dive in to a problem, a problem that exists and impacts every single human, you and me. Genesis 3 happens. Genesis 3 is what leads King David in the Psalms to write this in a song, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Genesis 3 would be why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, death spread to all men. So last week, we ended our time in chapter 2, verse 25, and this is what it says. Man and woman were naked and unashamed. And the reason this is is because there was no sin. They lived in perfect relationship with God and one another. 
There was no such thing as sin. So this wasn't um, something that uh, was silly or joked about. Like, it, they were just naked and unashamed. And them being unashamed, this was way more than being unclothed. What it meant was that they could fully enjoy God. By them being unashamed in one of what we would see as the most vulnerable places that we could ever be, they were able to enjoy God. God saw everything in them and there was no shame. So they could enjoy God. And then in their enjoyment of God, because there was no fear or shame that was between them and God, there was no fear and shame towards one another. They were able to enjoy one another in this perfect, amazing, wonderful way. And then not only did they get to enjoy God and enjoy one another, but then they got to enjoy God's creation. And them enjoying God's creation was not... um, lifting up creation above God, but actually, they, as they enjoyed creation, it caused them to worship God. They, they saw uh, the fruit of the trees and the animals and the sunsets and all this stuff, and they, they were able to enjoy it in a way that every bite, every, every moment that they engaged with the creation around them, it caused an awe and a wonder in them of who God is and how much they were able to enjoy Him. So, So this is what it meant for them to stand and live being unashamed. But then in Genesis 3, this crafty creature enters. Now, who is this? Well, to understand who this crafty creature is, I want to take us to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28, verses 1 through 10, and I would love if you uh, leave today my hope would be is that you take some notes and that you would actually go throughout the week and maybe read some of these passages that we're talking about. If I reference a single verse, my encouragement would be to read all the verses around it, read it in context to the passage. And so, so in, in Ezekiel 28, verses 1 to 10, it, it seems as though, and commentators would agree, that that's about a human leader. It's about this human leader in Ezekiel 28, 1 through 10, But then there's a shift in verse 11, and verses 11 through 19 seem to be about this other beautiful, created being. Ezekiel 28, 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then it goes on to talk about how this beautiful created being began to make himself the focus, began to worship himself in all of his fullness and beauty as opposed to God. So by worshiping himself, he was punished and he was cast to the ground. That's Ezekiel 28. Now, in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17, many commentators suggest that it speaks to the beautiful one that we're just talking about in Ezekiel 28 that declares, I will make myself like the most high God. But what does God do? Because he says, I'm going to make myself like the most high God, he brings him down to Sheol. This is the depths of hell, the furthest 
from the presence of God that he could possibly be. So this serpent creature who was either the incarnation of evil or he was being possessed by evil, that's split, not understanding whether it was the actual incarnation of the devil or it was just being possessed by the devil, comes, being believed that he was greater than God, he was out to destroy all of God's creation, and so what he does is he tries to convince humanity that God is withholding something from them. And by withholding something, God was not providing the ability to be just like God. And by them eating of this fruit that God was withholding from them, they could, in fact, be like God. Look at verses one through five again. Now the serpent, who was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? This is a, this is a trick a tool that the devil will use in your life every single day. Did God really say that? Is that really what the Bible means? Could it mean something else? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Because what does God actually say? If you, if you go back to, to God's actual command, he says you actually can eat of all of the trees of the garden. He says, you you enjoy it all. I made it all for you. But there's this one tree that will bring you death. So don't eat of it. God is protecting them. But now she's recalling what God says. We may eat of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Ooh, this is big. Neither shall we touch it. Neither shall we touch it, lest you die. If you go back and you read this in context to the whole of Genesis 1 and 2, does God ever say you can't touch it? So what does she begin to do in this moment? When the devil starts speaking lies to her, did God actually say? And beginning to get her to question God, she then adds to God's word. This is our first slip up. This is what we tend to do. Begin to add to what God says because we heard a catchy phrase on Caleb. So we, we just think, oh, that, oh, or we saw it in our dentist's office. It's on a plaque. And so we think, oh, yeah, that, that's a Bible verse, when really it's not a Bible verse. So we begin to add to the word of God. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what does he do? He convinces her of the same thing he convinced himself of, that I don't need God. I could do it on my own. And so she begins to ponder. Well, it looks like it's good for food. Man, that is a pretty piece of fruit. Man, it's beautiful, probably more beautiful than all the other fruit that God has allowed us to eat. Look how shiny, look how colorful. Mm. And it provides something for me that I don't have. It's gonna make me wise. And so she takes and she eats. So the devil convinces her that 
God is withholding something. They can be like God. I love uh, what the women's Bible study is going through on Wednesday nights and Thursday mornings. They're going through a study by Nancy Guthrie. And in this study, she says this. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would not merely enable those who ate to know what is good and evil are. To eat of it was to assume the right to decide for oneself what is good and what is evil rather than, rather than depend on God to define good and evil. So now all of a sudden, my truth becomes what I believe, and if I believe it, then it can be true. And here enters relative truth into the world, where now, as long as you believe it, it must be true, and you can believe something different than what I believe, and we're both true, which makes no sense, by the way. But all of a sudden, this enters into our world. So once, at one point, they were unashamed, enjoying God, enjoying each other, enjoying God's good creation. Now, man and woman are filled with shame and they're captured by fear. Now, this creates a huge shift in the relationship that God has with man and woman. A huge chasm between God and man and God and one another and God and his creation. Uh, I'm sorry, and uh, man and the creation. It creates this huge chasm between these two. One, what we see in verse 8, is that they hide from God. Never before, never before did they have to hide from the presence of the Lord. In fact, you, they were seen walking with the Lord in the presence of the garden, in perfect harmony and love. I mean, this is what heaven's gonna be like? Like we get to be in the presence of the Lord? That's what we long for as believers? That's what we should long for as believers? They were experiencing that goodness. But now they are hiding from God. They hear him coming and they run. What else happens? They become disconnected from one another. This is what we see in verses 11 through 13. This is the first blame shift fight. Husbands, wives, do you ever have that blame shift fight? Well, you should have, and, and you should have, and I thought I was, and you were supposed to, and very evident in kids. You know, they, you say to them, hey, clean up this space, then you walk away, and then you come back, and it's like, why isn't the space come up? Well, she should have, and she should have, and he should have, and they were supposed to, and I said, and this first blame ship fight, right? Where, where God says to man, what did you do? And he goes, the woman that you gave me. <laughs> Men, have you ever looked at God and said, God, I would serve you better if, if you didn't give me this woman. And so what does the woman do? She says, well, the serpent... And so now all of a sudden, there's this disconnect from one another. Instead of confession, what did, what, what, what did you do? God, I'm sorry. I disobeyed you. No, she did it. Well, it was his fault. And it also caused them and we see this throughout the rest of scripture, to worship creation rather than the creator. 
And so, so all of a sudden in verse six, what I just read, I mean, you saw like, like what she saw that was, 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 was pretty and what she saw that was good for food and it was a delight, to, like something in her thought that it was gonna satisfy her and make her wise. Like all of a sudden, that, that verse six has translated to the rest of the creation. So why do we sin? Why do we worship the creation? Because we think it's gonna be good for us. I mean, why, why would we? Like, why would we go have an affair? That's just dumb. But we're convinced that, oh, this is gonna bring some sort of satisfaction. Why do we look at things we shouldn't look at or partake of things we shouldn't partake in or try to numb ourselves with substances or endless scrolling? Why do we do it? Because we think it's gonna bring some sort of fulfillment. It's a delight to our eyes and we think it's gonna make us wise. And so we watch endless hours of CNBC and, and CNN and Fox. Why? Because we just think it's gonna fill us with something good, but it doesn't. It doesn't fill us with anything good. But this entered in Genesis 3, 6, we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. See, in the moment of temptation, Eve should have said, you know what, serpent? God has given me everything that I need. In that moment where she began to entertain disobeying God, she should have been like, oh, God, God has provided everything in this garden for me. I don't need the one thing that I don't have. See, see, Adam in that moment, who, who seems to be kind of somewhat close by, he should have grabbed the head of that serpent, man. You want to know what manhood looks like? Protecting his wife from sin? He should have grabbed the head of that serpent and thrown that thing to the ground. That's what that should have looked like. Instead, he was just passive. He just let it happen. And then blames her for it. But instead, in the moment of temptation, they go from unashamed to ashamed. And this is massive. It's an undoing of God's goodness for every man, every woman, and every child. Hiding because of our sin. Hiding causes a catastrophic chasm between us and God and us and one another. This question, where are you? This is not a fun game that God's playing. He was living in perfect relationship with man because there was no sin. But as soon as sin entered, there was a chasm because God cannot look upon sin. So there's this chasm between God and man. This isn't a, a question of, what's your location? I mean, it truly was that there was a severance between God and man that had never been experienced before. He's speaking to the heart of this chasm when he says, where are you? We existed in perfect harmony. And now there's a severance. So God then provides an opportunity for man to be redeemed, restored. And this is the good news. So if we look at Genesis 3 and we think, man, this is all doom and gloom, it's not. It's not. There's good news here. So let's get to the good news. How does God redeem man? Well, there's the first expression 
of the gospel. Now, I just want to clarify, that word gospel is kind of a Christian catchphrase. We use it a lot. So that word gospel means good news. And what we're talking about is the good news of restoration for this chasm that we've been talking about. Good news that restores the severance between us and God, and that good news is found in Jesus alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Okay? So when when I say gospel, I want you to, in the back of your mind, think we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the first expression of the gospel, this good news, is the seed that is found in verses 14 and 15. Let's look at that together. So verses 14 and 15. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here it is. This is the first glimpse of that good news. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what does this mean? So this is talking about a seed, a seed that's gonna come, a redeemer, a descendant of Adam and Eve. And then there's this phrase, bruise the heel of the seed and bruise the serpent's head. In Hebrew, these are actually slightly different words. And so in the ESV, they say bruised and bruised, but there's actually a different meaning behind these words. So the first one that's talking about uh, the serpent bruising the seed is to make him bleed. But the second one that's talking about the seed that is going to bruise the head of the serpent is actually talking about crushing. So this is a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of the fact that the serpent is gonna bite the heel of the seed. This takes us all the way to Jesus. Jesus, who is gonna be put on a cross, who is going to pour out his blood, but that wound is temporary. That wound is a mere flesh wound. That there will be some blood that's poured out, but it's not going to cripple the seed. However, what the seed is going to do, the redeemer, the redeemer, that my New York just came out, the redeemer, <laughs> the redeemer, the Messiah, what is he going to do? He's going to crush the head of the serpent. How? because he's gonna experience the one thing that this curse is supposed to do, bring death, spiritual and physical. And now, this redeemer, this Messiah, this seed, is gonna crush the serpent's head by raising from the the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. So the first beautiful picture of the gospel, of the plan that God has had from the beginning of time is that the the serpent is going to look like he bruises the heel of the coming Messiah, but it's just a flesh wound. Blood will be poured out, and then that seed will crush the head of the serpent by raising from the dead to give us the opportunity to experience life and life to the fullness. Remember that chasm 
that we were talking about? Remember that separation that we were going to experience between us and God? That we do experience between us and God? That every single person from the beginning of their life, from their first breath out of the womb, womb that, they, that they are going to experience this chasm because we are born into sin, in our iniquity, into death. Now, Jesus restores all things because he has won the victory over death. Amen? So, that's the first expression. This story serves as an opening scene of a bigger story, this ultimate redeemer. And then second, this is the second expression of the gospel. Look at verse 21. So I'll start in verse 20. The man calls his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. Verse 21, and then the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He clothed them. He covered up their shame and their fear. He covered up their hiding. What does this mean? God doesn't leave us hiding in shame. He covers their nakedness. He covers their shame. He covers their guilt. He covers that blame shifting. He covers it all. Every bit of their vulnerability, he covers up with this clothing. This is the first act of undeserved grace. That idea of clothing is uh, the, the Hebrew word A-S-A-H, to accomplish something. He is accomplishing something in this act of placing skins and clothing on them because Jesus took my shame, he took my guilt, he took my brokenness, he took my hurts, my habits, my hangups, my addiction, and he covered them with his blood. This is the second good news that we see here in the scriptures. He doesn't leave us alone and hiding in the bushes. He covers us. And I love what the commentator Derek Thomas says. When Adam and Eve failed to obey the terms of the covenant works that's seen in Genesis 3-6, God did not destroy them, which would have served justice, but instead, he revealed his covenant of grace to them by a promised savior, Genesis 3.15. One who would restore the kingdom that they had latterly been destroyed. That had latterly been destroyed. God's method of grace is costly. The heel of the savior will be bruised. It would have been a just thing for in that moment... In that moment of sin, in that moment of fear, in that moment of hiding, it would have been a just thing for God to kill them on the spot. That would have served justice. But instead, he gave them an opportunity of hope, grace, love, and mercy. If you're coming in here today and you have the mindset of, Man, like there's so much junk inside of my life. There's so many things that I have done that you don't know about. I want you to know that God loves you and wants a relationship with you. I want you to know that God has accomplished everything that you need for salvation on the cross. There is nothing you can do. You cannot clean yourself up to get your act together so that God will then love you. There's no amount of cleaning yourself up. This is no works. No, nothing. You only bring to the table your sin and shame and guilt and fear. That's all you bring. You don't 
bring your goodness, your gifts, your talents, your money. None of it counts. What counts is the fact that Jesus paid it all for you on the cross. And so because he paid it all for you on the cross and that covers you, then therefore in worship we can bring what God has given us like our time, talent, resources, and all that stuff to the table. But it's not because we bring that stuff that he gives us his love. He gives it to us freely and fully right from Genesis 3. We see this foreshadowing of him clothing us with skins. And so our response in this, what do we do with this? Because death that's supposed to fall on us falls on another. Well, our response is to put our faith in Jesus. And this is not a one and done thing. The one and done piece is the fact that we are justified. That means we are declared not guilty in the eyes of the Lord. So that is a one and done thing. We are saved. By grace, you are saved through faith. But then there's this daily remembering that we have to experience a daily remembering that we have been saved. This is the process of sanctification. The process of sanctification is not cleaning up myself now that I've been saved, but the process of sanctification is remembering that I've been saved. So why do I not give myself to my addiction? Because I have been saved. Why do I not do these things and hide from God? Because I have been saved. So daily, I have to remind myself of this good news, that there was a seed that clothed me, that accomplished my salvation. And so when I'm looking at the things I shouldn't be looking at, when I'm doing the things I shouldn't be doing, when I'm acting the way I shouldn't act, when I'm treating my wife or my kids or my, my neighbors or my coworkers poorly, I can remember I have been saved. I have been given grace. I have been given mercy. And so because I remember that now, then, therefore, I can show the world love and make disciples of Jesus, not because I have the ability to, but because God has given me the ability to. So it's a daily trusting in Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, reminding ourselves that we have been saved because he covers our shame and our fear. And I want you to know that the enemy will attack. If he attacked the perfect beings of Adam and Eve in the garden, he's going to attack you. And so he's gonna have those whispers, but it's gonna be better. But this will make you feel more fulfilled. So there's these moments that you begin to see and hear the voice of the enemy telling you that there's a better way. And so we put our trust in Jesus, remembering that he's covered our shame and our fear because the enemy has already been defeated. Guess what? We're already on the championship team. The victory has already been won. And so we can live in that victory. And I love where we're going in the next couple of weeks because we're going, shifting from this image of God series to a series called Forgiven Failures. And we're gonna go through the rest of Genesis and look at the people that God shows us in Genesis and see how every single one of those people are forgiven failures. That God, that they fail, God calls them to do something, they fail, and then God redeems them. And we have entered into that story. So if you're coming in here today and you're like, well, I feel like a failure, good. Because God loves you and he is going to redeem your story. If you've failed in a way that you feel like is unredeemable, you've not. God has redeemed some very, very broken people. And this book is a story of all the people that were broken, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he's loved us, gives us Christ. By grace we have been saved through faith.
leading us to Jesus. So this is what I want us to do. On your seat, Miguel, you can come on up. On your seat is a card. And just as Miguel's doing, uh, he wrote down some fears and failures. And so we all have them. Um, This is just for you. Um, Write down some fears and failures. And just as Adam and Eve should have done in the garden, brought them in confession to God, I want us to take these and I want us to write down any fears and failures that we're comfortable writing down or even uncomfortable writing down. And then I want us to bring them to these tables. There's two here and two on the sides there. And on these tables is some clothing, some fur. It's fake for those of you that like animals. But what the hope is is that when we take this, we remember that this is merely just a symbol of what God has done for us, which he has clothed us by the blood of his son. And so it does shed, it's gonna fly around like that, but take it with you. Maybe put it somewhere where you're gonna see it and remember on a daily basis that God is your salvation. There's no longer a chasm between you and God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Amen. Can I pray for us? And then I want to invite you, after you're done writing these, you can go at any time. So whenever you feel comfortable, go to these tables. You can crumple it up. You could fold it up and just stick it on the table um, and then take one of these to go with you. Jesus, we love you. God, I don't think that this index card, I know, I know that this index card is not big enough to write down all of my fears and failures. I would need pages and pages and pages and pages of these And you already know every single one. But even knowing them, Lord, the ones I've done in the past, the ones that I'm doing in the present, and the ones that I will do in the future, even knowing this, Lord, you love me. And you clothe me. And you give me salvation. So God, I pray that as we partake in this act, that it wouldn't be an act of religion or something that we're forced to do, but that we would come and receive the goodness of your gospel by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Father, we are sorry. I am sorry for how I constantly put myself and the things around me over you. So Lord, I pray that in this moment you would give me a sweet sense of your peace and love and mercy and grace. In your name that we pray, amen.